0: If you have your Bibles, we have two passages we're going to look at today, Philippians chapter 1 and Jeremiah chapter 29. We will come to them in a few moments. In this series, we are asking, where do we go from here? In the midst of a pandemic, supposedly, apparently, we're Supposed to be coming to the tail end of it, we don't know. But where do we go from here? And I'm convinced that we have to begin by answering the question, Who are we? Who are we? Two Sundays already we've looked at this. First of all, we saw that we are those who are called. First, in that God has called us, and he is calling us to life and faith in Christ. And second, that he has called us and is calling us to a certain kind of life. Ordained and imposed on man by God for the common good We've looked at this the idea the biblical idea of calling So I've mentioned before we may not like the idea or the words ordained and imposed But consider the alternatives that in fact your career your situation is really the result of sheer chance Or that it is the result of your own will and choice We saw in 1 Corinthians 7 that even before God called us to become Christians, he was already working in our lives. He had already given us skills, desires, abilities. Um, And I, I think that's quite remarkable. Oftentimes people think, well, God actually really didn't do anything in my life until he called me to become a Christian. That's when he began to work in my life. And the truth is he has been working in our lives all along. So we begin by defining who we are by saying we are those who are called by God. Not a statement of uh, pride, but one of humility. Because it recognizes if God didn't call us, that there is no way we would become his people. And we are those who belong to the people of God. We are called not simply to be individuals as children of God. We are called to do as that. But we are called to be the family of God. Then last Sunday, we saw that we are Americans. God has chosen for us to live when we should, and he has chosen where we would live, and it is in this country. Whether we are citizens or not, we are Americans. That is, we live in this place. And again, this is ordained and imposed by God, and consider the alternatives. Either you are here because of the choice of others, your ancestors, maybe your parents, or you're here because of your own will and choice. We are, in fact, a nation of immigrants. We are a very mobile society. And as such, I think we lose sight of this, that God, in fact, has put us where we are. We might, in fact, see ourselves as being in charge of our lives, that I've decided to live here, and that's why I live where I do live. But Paul says that God has determined the exact places where we should live. God is in control, and God has arranged the circumstances. Let's say, for example, that you're going to move, or you have moved. Even before you moved, God had arranged the circumstances, the neighbors who would be there um, when you got there. It isn't simply something that you have chosen to do, but God, in fact, has been working ahead of time, in the same way that God has been calling us even before he called us to faith in Christ. As to the matter of being Americans or living in America, I chose to focus on the issue of freedom of religion or religious freedom. It's seemingly one of the things that sets us apart as a nation. G.K. Chesterton visited the United States in the early part of the century and later wrote a book, uh, What I Saw in America, published in 1922. And in answer to the question, what is America, at the end of his first chapter, he speaks of America as a nation with the soul of a church. Protected by religious, not racial selection. Many of the early Europeans who came to this country did so to escape religious persecution and so to have religious freedom. Last week I presented four questions and tried to answer them to deal with this matter of religious freedom. Is Christianity a religion? I would answer no. And what is the basis of political authority? which is, I think, the question in this whole matter, it is that God is the final source of all political authority, whereas in the West, in today's world, we tend to see it as power rests in the will of the people. Third question, do we have freedom of religion? The answer is no, and if you want to know more about that, you can listen to last week's sermon. And lastly, do we want freedom of religion? And I would say no. Again, if you have not listened to the sermon from last week, this might all seem somewhat confusing, and I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. Um, Just an aside, I don't know if you ever do YouTube, but it's an unusual experience in that things pop up that you you weren't looking for, and you sort of stumble on things. And this past week, I stumbled on sort of the seeming debate between two factions about freedom of religion, Christian factions, and the one was saying, we do not want religious freedom, because if you have freedom of religion, that allows pagan re- religions to have freedom. And then the answer was, you know, it's like, of course we want freedom of religion, that's what makes us Americans, that's what's great. And I couldn't help but think, it's like, you both have missed the point. It's not about freedom, it's about what is religion. Um. So I would add a fifth question to tie on to last week's sermon. Are we free not to be a religion? Um, This is actually the title of a chapter of William Kavanaugh's book, um, Field Hospital, The Church's Engagement with a Wounded World. Um, I've argued that Christianity is not a religion. We don't have freedom of religion. We don't want freedom of religion. Okay? It's not about freedom, it's about religion. You know, when you say freedom of religion, people assume, oh, I know what you're talking about, and I think, in fact, many people do not. Who gets to define what is religion as a category? We saw this last week. It's the government. It's the government who defines whether or not you are a religion. It has arguments about the free exercise of religion. And so again as we saw last week churches synagogues mosques are entitled uh, to exemption but schools hospitals charities and other agencies that are affiliated with churches are seen as not religious so church religion but a church uh, run hospital or school or whatever not not religious as such and so the government makes a distinction between church agencies which serve a religious function and those which serve a social function. And if you serve a religious function, you're a religion. And if you don't, then you're not a religious uh, organization. And the implication, as Kavanaugh puts it, is that religion is not something that is essentially social. Okay. I would also add it's ultimately something that is not essential. And if you doubt that, think of what's happened in the past year with the pandemic, when you have certain things that are considered essential services and other things that are not considered essential. So what has happened is that the government in defining religion has separated religion from the rest of life. So you have that, remember, private interior impulse, the private, you know, that's religion, that's faith. And then everything else is the world. So politics, economics, the arts, education, medicine, and so on, that belongs to the secular realm, not the religious realm. And those, in fact, who did not make a separation when, in the 19th century when the whole colonial thing took over, these people are seen as primitive, and they need to be modernized. When the church, and Kavanaugh points this out, when the church allows itself to be defined as a religion, there are at least three dangers. The first is individualism. The second is a separation of religion from the rest of life, which I've just talked about. And thirdly is assimilation to the dominant culture. I'll only mention or touch on the first. Government policies may be based on the idea that the idea of religious rights lie in the individual, not groups. So, in fact, the government would say that I, Damon Woods, have the freedom of religion, but that the church on Melrose does not necessarily. That the freedom rests in the individual, but not in groups. And that is because religion is defined as being a matter of personal preference, of individual preference. And so religious bodies cannot claim any type of rights, or so it is argued. So hospitals and universities are seen... As a church's non-religious arms, they, yeah, they belong to a church, but they 're non-religious, since religion is confined to individual belief in modern society, it is the individual along with the view of freedom, who gets to decide what is good rather than being it shaped or shaped by a shared conception of what is good, that is to say. I, Damon Woods, get to decide what is good, what is right, not we as the church on Melrose. So where does that put the church? Well, certainly not something that has religious freedom. It puts us in this tiny little corner of reality called religion. It only deals with things that don't deal with real life. It's that otherworldly, we're going to heaven when we die, you don't want to go to hell when you die type of stuff. It's just that little tiny corner of our lives. When the church has social effects, then that's declared to be non-religious. So if the church, in fact, would start a school, build an orphanage, uh, maybe a hospital, uh, perhaps a home for unwed mothers, for abused women, all these things, well, that's not religious. So are we not free to decide that we're not a religion. Yes, absolutely. But this runs contrary to the surrounding culture, and we need to do that. Okay. So who are we? We are those who are called by God. We are those who live in this country. We are Americans. Today, a third thing, we are exiles. We are exiles. There are many passages that we could use as our text from both the Old and New Testaments. Um, Let me just read a few... Leviticus 25, the land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you are but aliens and my tenants. Psalm 39, which part of which is in our prayer of confession. Hear my prayer, O Lord, listen to my cry for help. Be not deaf to my weeping, for I dwell with you as an alien, a stranger as all my fathers were. Hebrews 11, the chapter of faith All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. 1 Peter 1. Since you call on a father who judges each man impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. And 1 Peter 2. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from the sinful desires which war against your soul. So this idea of being aliens, being strangers, being exiled um, is is found throughout Scripture. But for our purposes I want to look at two passages today uh, Philippians one and Jeremiah chapter twenty nine. I want to point out something an aside before we jump in. We are unusual exiles, in that we have never been to the place from which we are exiled. Okay, Most exiles live in a place and then they're thrown out or they're made to leave. Um, We've never been to heaven. We've never been in the presence of God, immediate presence. And yet, in a very strange way, we are called exiles. We are reconciled to God. And we are grateful for that. But having been reconciled to God... We are now out of place with the world that is not reconciled to God. And as such, we are exiles. Jesus addresses in John 15, the night before his death. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. And then in his prayer to the Father in John 17, I have given them your word and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world. And any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Simply put, we are exiles. Our first text today is found in Philippians chapter 1, verse number 27. Where Paul writes to the Philippians, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul is writing this as a prisoner. He is a prisoner of the Roman Empire. And as he begins his letter, he, he deals with a warning about present realities. He expects to be released from prison soon, but in the meantime, he is still a prisoner. That is, he is not in Philippi, he's in Rome, and so he's writing this letter to tell them about how it is that they should behave. He asks the question, Is how is it, in fact, that they are conducting themselves? How are they living out the gospel? The King James uh, Version for this verse has, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. In the NIV, we have the word conduct. In the King James, we have the word conversation. And while these are helpful, something I think crucial is being missed. If you're familiar at all with the writings of Paul and what he's written elsewhere... You might think that this verse, Philippians 1 is merely a restating of what he said other in other places. Uh, Ephesians four one. As a prisoner for the Lord, so he is in prison there as well. Then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. The King James has walk worthy of the vocation. From Romans six, verse four, we we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. The King James, we should walk in newness of life. The King James has walk, the NIV has live. But both of them have the Jewish metaphor to walk in the ways of the Lord. But what we find in Philippians one twenty seven is quite different than what Paul has written elsewhere. And I don't think he could have written Philippians 1.27 to any of the other churches. Okay, The word he uses, he chooses a very specific word, politeos este. It means the conduct or the behavior of a citizen. So when he's, you know, in Philippians, Ephesians walk worthy of the vocation. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying you are to conduct yourself as a citizen. It's a metaphor that he will use later in chapter 3, verse 20. We are citizens of heaven. This is a word that was used specifically of a colony of foreigners, okay, who lived in a place that was not their original home. We need some background on Philippi. Philippi uh, was a place where Paul and Silas, you may remember, were arrested. It is the first place in Europe that the gospel was preached by an apostle. Paul had been in Asia Minor, and then a man of Macedonia in a vision says, come over and help us. Paul and Silas go to Philippi, and Philippi is where the gospels first preached in Europe. Um, they are arrested, they are beaten and put in prison. And the accusation is they are Jews, they are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Philippi has an interesting uh, history. It's actually named after King Philip who was Alexander the Great's father in Macedonia. But Octavian, who later became Caesar Augustus, defeated Cleopatra and Mark Antony at Actium. And then after that, he gave the city of Philippi as a colony, as a place for his veterans. They usually didn't have a pension system, so they gave them land. So under Caesar Augustus, Philippi became a colony. It was given colony status. It possessed what is called Ius Italicum, that is to say, let me read this, by which the whole legal position of the colonists in respect to ownership, transfer of land, payment of taxes, local administration and law, became the same as if they were on Italian soil, as in fact by a legal fiction they were. I think the closest we can think of is today in the modern world is an embassy. That if, in fact, you step into the embassy, let's say, of a foreign country, France, United Kingdom, Russia, once you step into the grounds of the embassy, you are technically in that country. And you are subject to the laws of that country. And, in fact, the police cannot, the United States police cannot come in because that's foreign soil. So what the Philippians could say is, our home is in Rome. Okay, it's also here in Philippi. But we are Roman citizens. We are living as though we are in Rome. We live as citizens of Rome. This is the word Paul chooses to use. And I think the Philippians knew exactly what he's talking about. If he had written this to the Ephesians, I I don't think they would have been as clear. Because Ephesus was not a colony. Philippi was. And if you think about it, um, what Octavian did was around 27 B.C., and Paul's writing about 55. So we're looking at like 80 years since it was established as a colony. You're looking at third and fourth generation Roman citizens. Many, if not most, had never been to Rome. And so in that sense, they are exiles as we are exiles, but they saw themselves as being Roman citizens. So what is Paul saying to them? in the same way that they are Roman citizens, they are citizens of heaven. They are citizens of heaven. They have the obligation to live as though, in fact, they are citizens of heaven. As much as to say, we have our home here in, on earth, but we have it in heaven as well. We are to live as citizens of heaven. And what does this mean? What is involved? Simply put, Christ is king. We are citizens and the gospel is our law. As Jesus told his disciples, if you love me, you will obey what I command. Paul has something very specific in mind. We are to obey the commandments of the gospel. By the way, if you've been following along, you will notice that I didn't read all of verse number 27. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit. Contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. This is what Paul has in mind for them to live as exiles, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. They are to stand firm. They are to contend. The second one stand, you know, depends on the first. Um, but I've left something out, haven't I? They are to do so in one spirit. They are to do it as one man. And again, these are the descendants of retired Roman legionaries. Uh, the Roman legion was famous because of its organization. They fought as a unit, as one man. And again, the language, the Philippians totally get this. I, I, the Ephesians, the Galatians, I don't think they would have. But they get this. They are to contend. They are to stand shield to shield. They are to stand firm for the gospel. I don't know if you've seen the movie Gladiator, but there is a scene where Maximus is in the arena and he tells the fellow gladiators with him, stay together, stay together. That's what the Legionnaires did. And that's why they were able to conquer much of the known world at that point. So Paul tells the Philippians, stay together, stand firm for the faith of the gospel because they are citizens of heaven. That's in chapter three, verse number 20. Our citizenship is in heaven. So here we have an example of those who had never been to Rome, but they are still to live as citizens of Rome. Now our second passage is in Jeremiah chapter 29. As I mentioned, when we began this series, we are reviewing in many ways things that we have looked at in the past, but it's been some time and perhaps it would do us well to review here in Jeremiah 29, he is writing a letter to those who are in exile in Babylon. These are honest to goodness exiles. They had lived in Judea in Jerusalem and now the Babylonians have captured them and taken them to Babylon. The first four ver- uh, first three verses. This is the letter this is a text of the letter that the prophet Isaiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the Queen Mother, the court officials, and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the artisans, had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter to Elasa, son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. It said, and we'll come to that in a bit. But you will notice those who are addressed. It's, it's like the cross section of society. The prophets, the priests, the court officials, the leaders, the craftsmen, the artisans. Okay? And what is it that Jeremiah is going to say to these exiles? And what is the application for us today as exiles? First of all, he tells them you are to be faithful in ordinary things. The ordinary things of life. Look, if you would, at verses uh, 4, 5, and 6. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Side note real quick. You'll notice that God said he carried them into exile. We would say, well, no, it was Nebuchadnezzar. Lord, you're confused. It was the bad guys, the Babylonians. No, this is something that God did. In the same way that God has put us where we live today, he had put them in exile. Verse 5, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Everyday stuff. Build houses, plant gardens, eat what the gardens produce, marry and have sons and uh, marry, have your sons and daughters marry. That's second generation. Um, Increase in number, do not decrease. The indication is that they are not to live out of suitcases. Okay, we are aliens, we are strangers, we are exiles, we're passing through, but they need to settle down. We need to settle down. This is where God has put us. I'm struck by how ordinary these things are. Um, they're not some postscript to a letter that speaks of spectacular things. Go out and defeat the Babylonians. You know, build weapons of war. No, these are the ordinary, everyday things. The faithfulness of God's people is to be seen in the ordinary things of life. Yes, we are exiles. Our citizenship is in heaven. We've never been to heaven but our citizenship is there. But in the meantime, we live here and we are to be faithful in the ordinary things of life. Secondly, engage, do not withdraw. Verse number seven, also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. One might mistakenly think, That being faithful in the ordinary things of life means withdrawing into your own subculture. You look around and you're like, oh my goodness. The world's going to hell in a handbasket. This is terrible. We need to withdraw into our own little enclave of Christian believers. No, they were to pray for Babylon. They were to work in Babylon in order that Babylon might flourish and prosper. I wonder if we think that way. They were not only to establish a presence in the city, but to expect that God was at work in and through them. One writer has put, they arrive as captives, but now they are to act as missionaries, seeking the peace and prosperity of a city that by every measure was in rebellion against the living God. We live in Babylon, but do we pray for Babylon? Do we pray for our city, our county, our state, our nation? Do we remember that those that surround us are made in the image of God? Or do we merely see them as enemies? Engage, do not withdraw. The third thing that he tells him in this letter is to be discerning. Verses 8 and 9. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. One would expect that God would be warning them against, he said, be discerning you know, about the foreign culture. They were living in Babylon, pagan idolatry. Okay, But in fact, he calls for discernment on those who claim to use the name of God, who claim to speak in God's name. I think this is as true for us today as it was for them centuries ago. In a society which is driven by the consumer mentality, and the customer is always right, I think it has affected our view of things, and we have become less than discerning. Fourthly, there to be people of hope. It's hard to live in exile. It's even harder to be in exile and to be hopeful at the same time. It seems very little to be optimistic about. To those in exile, the Lord gave a a gracious promise. Verse 10 and 11. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. There is a promise of returning from exile. Verse 12, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you back. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Again, it's God who carried them into exile. It's God who banished them to Babylon and all these other pagan places. If we would be honest, it is hard to be people of hope in a fallen world particularly when we long for a better place where our our citizenship is, in heaven. It is hard to be discerning in a pagan society. It's hard to be faithful in a pagan society. And it may be disappointing when our callings might seem so ordinary, not like spectacular sort of superhero type thing, when we have the ordinary callings and God's timing can be disappointing. 70 years? Are you kidding me? We're going to have to wait 70 years. But we are to be people of hope. And lastly, we are to recognize that things are not out of control. Verse number 11 is a wonderful promise. One, I must say, that people have taken as their own, and I think wrongly so. Look at the context. Who is God speaking to? Okay. You know, I have the plans I have for you to prosper you and not to harm you. The prosperity doctrine people have, in fact, embraced this as sort of their text, He's talking to the people there in Babylon. But you will notice that the plans God has for them does not include rescue. They're going to be there 70 years. Okay. The plans God has for them is not going to transform the Babylonian culture. Everything's not going to be wonderful. Okay? For these Jews, the world has been turned upside down. By human reasoning, the gods of the Babylonians must have been stronger than the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord lets them know who, in fact, is in control. If you go back to verse number 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Who carried them? God did. It was the Lord's doing. He is still in control. If we are to be people, exiles, with hope in a disappointing world, we have to maintain a biblical perspective of human history and the story of our lives. We should not see things primarily in terms of the ebb and flow of current events, the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, for example. Would we even say the rise and fall of the American Empire? But rather, we should think in terms of God's redemptive purposes in Jesus Christ, that he is bringing all things to their appointed end. This this means that no matter how bad things look, or how the media makes them look, things are not out of control. No matter what we may think, God's plans and God's timing are in fact perfect. Jesus has promised to return, but that doesn't mean that the world will cease to be a disappointing place in the meantime. What it does mean is that God's plans are far greater than we could possibly imagine. That what he is doing is to bring all things to their appointed end, to their telos, the consummation. It is beyond our comprehension. But we need to remember that God is in control. So we are those who are called, we are those who live in this country, we are exiles. Our citizenship is in heaven. But what are we to do in the meantime? One thing we saw last week is, as people who live in this country, is we are to obey the laws, Um, as long as they do not conflict with what God commands. We obey God rather than men. But we have certain obligations. In Romans 13, we owe taxes. We are to show respect. We are to show honor. Um, But as exiles, what are our duties? Well, we see it here in Jeremiah 29. We are to be faithful in ordinary things. We are to engage, not withdraw. We are to be discerning. We are to be people of hope. We are to recognize that things are not out of control. I'm convinced that we are far more comfortable with us defining ourselves with us determining what is right and what is wrong. If, in fact, we are the people of God, called by God, put in this place at this time, we are exiles, but we belong to heaven. We have obligations as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, but we have obligations here as well. And they are not the flashy things, though we might want that to be the case. In the ordinary things, we're to be obedient. And we're to have hope. We're to have hope. In dark times, this might be seen as a dark time. There have been far darker times in human history. But we're to know that God is in control. We are his people. We're exiles. Our citizenship is in heaven. Let's pray together. Father, living when and where we do, we are very comfortable defining ourselves. In an age of identity politics, yeah, we choose to identify with one group or another. The reality is we are your people. You have called us. You have gifted us. You have put us when and where we are. Though we are citizens of heaven, this is where we live now. And as your people, you have put us here. You've called us to be faithful in the day to day things of life, not just spiritual or religious things, as some would want to limit us. We're not to withdraw. But in fact, we are to have hope. We need to be discerning, not primarily about the world, though there is that, but about what is the truth, what you have said, what has been spoken, what we are to follow. And above all, we must not lose sight of the fact that you are in control. The last 12 months may have caused us to wonder about that. And yet our situation hasn't been that difficult. Consider the Jews taken to Babylon, all the promises made about David's descendants sitting on the throne, the temple is destroyed. The world is upside down. And yet they have the wonderful promise that you have plans for them. And you do for us as well. If we would but humble ourselves and listen. We look for shortcuts. The world offers us many of them. We look for the flashy. And our culture provides a lot of that as well. but we are to be faithful exiles in the ordinary things, in matters of hope, in the matter of community. We're not to withdraw. Above all, we are to trust you. And as we consider where we go from here, may we think on these things and ponder them. Come to see who we are, as your people. I thank you for this Lord's Day, the first day of a new week. I ask that we would have a sense of your presence. We would be conscious of it as we walk through the world in this coming week. Thank you for your love. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. And we pray this through Jesus and in his name. Amen.